Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So COP26, it's going to make a great deal of noise. Many climate promises and commitments will be made. And even if all its objectives are met with massive expenditure of money, our guest argues almost nothing will be achieved as far as cooling the planet is concerned. And don't forget, China's president, Xi Jinping, has declined an invitation to attend COP26. He's going to limit his participation to a video address. Dr. Lomborg, uh, Bjorn Lomborg joins us, founder of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank. His book, most recent, is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. And Dr. Lomborg has um, had a column in yesterday's Globe and Mail, which was excellent reading. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you back with us. Much is being said about climate change being the existential threat to humankind and that COP26 is the last chance to make a real difference and turn the corner to net zero by 2050. Would you explain that to me, yeah. please? Yes, right. So good to be back. Yes, we are always being told that this is the very last chance uh, to make amends. Uh, the very first environment meeting uh, the UN ever held in 1972 in Stockholm uh, started with the, uh, uh, the then head of the organization saying we have just 10 years left to avoid catastrophe. Uh, so we should take this with more than a pinch of salt. The reality is global warming is a problem. It's not by any means the end of the world. And anything we do will take a long time to make this be fixed. So fundamentally, the idea that we can somehow quickly snap our fingers and make dramatic impact is simply not correct. Just to give you a sense of proportion, if the entire rich world, that would be Canada and the U.S. and EU and U.K. and Japan and Australia and New Zealand and so on, if they all went carbon neutral now, this day, and stayed carbon neutral for the rest of the century, it would reduce temperatures by the end of the century by about 0.5 degrees centigrade. It would be noticeable. This would not be what really made the difference because most of the emissions comes from all the other Africa, all the countries that look to lift the populations out of poverty and get economic growth going. So this is not something that you can just wish away. This is not something you can just snap your fingers at. And despite all the promises, we have seen very little actual movement over the last 30 years. And so we should not expect that this particular summit in Glasgow will suddenly change that. So this isn't really any different to uh, Paris 2015. Lots of hot air. Well, it's probably less than Paris. At least Paris did make some uh, specific proposals, not very... Uh, 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 not very strong, and also, uh, and, and I think this is important for context, uh, the UN actually did an assessment of 
climate policy in the 2010s. So a whole decade. And what they called that decade was a lost decade. They've actually found that they couldn't tell the difference from what we have actually achieved from a world where we hadn't cared about climate at all since 2005. It tells you something that this was a decade where we had Paris, we had lots of political attention, and we had lots and lots of problems. But the truth is, it has very little impact on how we actually emit. Because once it gets cold, once you don't have power, populations simply want more power. They want you to turn back on, and as we're saying in, in Europe and China, turn on the old coal-fired power plants because nothing is worth worse than actually being cold. Well, the president of France uh, found that out, didn't he, when uh, with his um, net zero ambitions and and the increasing cost of energy. And uh, then there was the yellow vest protest and and, and the president of France had to change his mind. Exactly. And this, of course, is what all leaders are dreading. The fact is you can promise a lot of things in climate because it sounds nice. You're basically saying, I want to avoid... Uh, civilizational collapse. So vote for me. That sounds like a nice thing. But once you start talking about how much will this cost you, most people sign off. Uh, so there is uh, uh, the world's first study for the New Zealand government. How how much would their net zero cost by 2050? And the answer is 16% of the New Zealand GDP every year by 2050. Uh, a new study for the U.S., shows in, 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 the, uh, in Nature magazine, shows the cost would be probably about 12% of U.S. GDP. So that's more than 11,000 U.S. dollars every year from 2050 for every U.S. citizen. Of course, nobody's actually going to stand up to that. Anyone who proposes that sort of uh, political uh, solution is going to be voted out of office. Yeah, let me just quote from a column that you wrote. They did appear in the uh, Globe and Mail on the 27th of October. In a frank analysis of recent climate policy, the UN calls the 2010s a lost decade. It notes that the level of emissions is the same as it would have been had no policies been put in place since 2005. That puts the challenge facing COP26 in perspective. World leaders can choose to do what they've done over decades and contribute to yet another meeting in a world overflowing with well-meaning climate summits, or leaders could finally go down a different path. The real problem with the current approach to climate policy is that as long as cutting emissions is expensive, leaders will talk a lot but do little. In the rich world, leaders want to avoid following in the embarrassing footsteps of French President Emmanuel Macron, who had to backtrack on a modest gasoline price hike after the Yellow Vest protests. In the poorer world, countries have much more important priorities, such as driving economic growth and getting their populations out of poverty. And then he wrote, what is needed is a much stronger focus on green energy research. If the world could develop green energy that was cheaper than fossil fuel, global warming would be solved. Says it all. Exactly. Yes, it really does. Because we have always solved big human problems with innovation. We haven't solved them by telling people, I'm sorry, you have to do with less. You have to be colder and more uncomfortable. What we do is solve it with innovation that both make people better off and solve the problem. Remember back in the 1970s when we worried about there's not enough food in the world. The solution was not to ask everyone in the rich world, could, could you eat a little less and then we'll send it down uh, to the poor and suffering in the global south. 
the solution was the green revolution. We actually managed to produce seeds that had much higher yield. So every hectare of, uh, of, of uh, agriculture would now produce much more food. We need the same approach for climate. Instead of promising that we will do with less energy and with more expensive energy, with less convenient and less reliable energy, we need to innovate the next generations of green energy down below fossil fuels. If it's cheaper, everyone else will. It just makes sense. I mean, I just let me just read that, that sentence again and then complete that, that short paragraph. What is needed is a much stronger focus on green energy research. If the world could develop green energy that was cheaper than fossil fuels, global warming would be solved. Everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning countries such as Canada, but everyone, including China and India. Working with 27 esteemed climate economists and three Nobel laureates, my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus, found the most effective long-term climate policy is in investing a lot more resources into green R&D. Uh, I have five questions for you, Dr. Lomborg, in the in the remaining time. So let's try to get, get through them here because I think they're relevant to each and every one of our listeners. What's the cost to individual Canadians of reaching for 2050 net zero emissions? The Royal Bank report uh, costs it out at $2 trillion and warns Canadians will have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. How uncomfortable? Well, quite uncomfortable. So we really have to understand this is going to be very expensive for U.S. citizens. It'll probably be more than $11,000 per person per year. That's a huge cost. That is. That's massive. And that's spread out across the, the entire energy sector, I take it. Well, this is mostly in lost GDP growth. So what, what the kind of thing that you find in the uh, Royal Bank of Canada report is mostly an investment cost, which is part of the cost, but it's really not the role because you get some of the money back on the, those investments. But the real cost is that the economy grows slightly slower. Now, remember, Canadians will still be richer by 2050, but you will leave your kids much less well off than they otherwise could have been. Okay, now Biden, President Biden, simultaneously is calling on OPEC nations to increase oil production while he's calling for net zero. What are your thoughts on this, and what are your thoughts about China's president? <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful image of, of the president flying to Europe for the climate summit and calling on OPEC to increase their <laughs> drilling and, uh, uh, and pumping of oil. So the reality here is it shows you most leaders don't want to do climate policies once their populations realize how expensive that is. Mm -hmm. So, sure, it's easy to say we should do something about climate change, but when gas prices ramp up, most politicians uh, buckle and actually say, we need cheaper gas. Well, you're located in Europe, and uh, as you know better than most, Germany and other European nations are calling on Russia to increase their natural gas flow, and Mr. Putin says, of course I'll do that, but simultaneously he's making it very clear he's demanding construction of a new pipeline under the Baltic Sea, so it's quid pro quo, and on, on one hand they're saying we want to reduce our, our, our emissions and pollution, and I agree with that, but on the other hand, okay, Mr. Putin, go ahead and build the pipeline. Yes, well, it shows how weak Europe is in this uh, situation. A lot of people would like to believe we can get by just with solar and wind. But, of course, what do you do when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining? We don't have batteries enough at all 
to fix this problem, just to give you a sense of proportion, right now the world has less than one minute to, uh, of storage for the entire world uh, electricity consumption. So, no, we can't do without fossil fuel backup. And that's why Europe needs the gas. And we're going to need it for a long time going forward. And the International Energy Agency is saying that by 2060, even if all the objectives are met, all the stated objectives are met, there's a difference between stated objectives and real objectives. If all the stated objectives are met, we'll still be using, uh, I think it is in the neighborhood of 60 to uh, 70 million barrels of oil every day in the world. So it's not an issue that's going to disappear at, at any time. The use of oil is not going to end, no matter what people may wish or wish for themselves. But if we, let me come back to this. If we, what will spending trillions of dollars on aiming for net zero emissions cost uh, by the time we get to 2060, can can that number even be calculated? It's very, very hard because obviously you're talking about what will technology be in uh, 30 or 40 years from now. But the indications is this will be extraordinarily expensive. So we're talking about you know, cost way beyond what we typically spend on health care. Uh, this is a substantial cost of all costs that we're going to incur in the country. That's, of course, why we have to realize both not going to get most populations to say yes if it's so expensive that it's really going to impact their future opportunities and their kids' income. And we need to find, which was what we talked about just before, through innovation. If we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, mm-hmm. it's not going to cost us anything. It's actually going to make us rich because then we'll get lots at very but we need that innovation because otherwise it's going to be cripplingly cost. So uh, you're not expecting much different this year from COP26 from what we received in 2015? No, we're certainly not going to get a huge difference. And if anything, we're likely to see very little come out of Glasgow, partly because everybody is now much more aware how incredibly expensive your energy is becoming and how they don't want that. And partly, of course, we have a situation where a lot of rich countries want to go to net zero, but a lot of poor countries are increasingly realizing this is going to mean that they won't be able to lift their populations out of poverty. And that matters a lot. So one last question for you. How do you interpret the president of China, Mr. Xi Jinping, declining the invitation to attend personally at COP26 and participating instead in a virtual message to the assembled politicians. How do you interpret that? Oh, it's hard to know. I mean, he may also just be worried about COVID. Uh, There is a lot of COVID going around in in the UK. But the honest answer is neither China nor India are actually willing to play along with the rich countries worry about climate change. Uh, The rich countries keep saying, we want to go to net zero. The poor countries, including China and India, are then saying, well, Give us lots and lots of money. We're trying to give, but more like 500, 750, or even $1.3 trillion a year. And of course, they wait around to see. But it's not actually going to get us a significant cut in emissions. Okay, so what's a trillion bucks? According to uh, Jerry Pacheco, who's a trade expert, international trade expert, uh, if you were to stack a billion U.S. 
dollar bills on top of each other, the stack would reach 67.9 miles. If you stacked a trillion dollars in dollar bills in the same manner, the column would reach 67,866 miles or comfortably into space, which of course is where Elon Musk is interested in taking the world privately. And according to um, uh, one of the analysts at Morgan Stanley last week, Elon Musk may become the world's first trillionaire. World's first trillionaire. What's a trillion dollars? And I think that Hertz, the car rental company, has announced they're buying 100,000 Teslas for their fleet. That's going to add tremendously to Elon Musk's personal worth. Okay, so suddenly they get little news like that and you just feel a little less significant. Financially, anyway. Dr. Eric Cam joins us, professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University. He's a regular contributor to this program and manages to put things into perspective. So, Dr. Cam, a trillion dollars, one guy. How does this happen? Well, first of all, you're right. Uh, it's an awful lot of money. Um, but I would like to say, Roy, to go back to what you just said, um, it makes you feel a little bit small financially. Well, you know what? It, I hope that it actually doesn't. I mean, if you look out onto the world, sometimes you see a lot of negativity and a, not, a lot of uh, people feeling down about their financial well-being and thinking, where can I actually get to in the world? I'd like to turn this story upside down and say that Elon Musk is really an example of what happens when ingenuity meets timing, meets good ideas, and I actually, believe it or not, very much believe in the great Canadian and great American dream that we can do anything or be anything. So I actually hope that when people hear that he's narrowing in on being worth a trillion dollars, that they're not feeling down. And in fact, I, I'd like them to be able to turn to their children and grandchildren and say, there's nothing special about Elon Musk. He puts on his pants and his shirts like we do. And there's no reason, no reason why that can't be today's young people. And I know, I know I'm being a little pie in the sky here, but since you're just talking about space, why not? Just a little. You're just a little pie in the sky. I was, <laughs> I was joking. It doesn't make me feel insignificant because I, I know exactly how much I'm worth. Remember Paul Getty? Of course. He was once the world's most uh, wealthiest man because he was worth $1 billion. And I've told this story before. A reporter said to him one day, Mr. Getty, uh, do you know how much you're worth? And Paul Getty said, uh, no, I really don't. Because uh, if you know how much you're worth, you're not worth very much. And then he looked at the reporter and he said, and I suspect you know exactly how much you're worth. So <laughs> it was one of those moments of comeback. So a trillion bucks. As uh, Jerry Pacheco says, 67,866 miles into space if you were to pile uh, trillion $1 bills, American $1 bills, because we don't have them anymore, on top of each other. That's how tall it would be. It's also um, a little less than our national debt. So may I ask you, since you're in the world of macroeconomics, can you just put the state of our nations, of Canada's finances, into perspective for us? Where are we now? Well, first of all, let's just get back very quickly. The world is worth about $92 trillion. And so before we go going crazy about Elon Musk, I have some sad news for you. He cannot afford to buy 16 countries in the world. Elon Musk cannot afford to purchase Indonesia, 
all the way up to the United States. So before you get too excited, there are still limits. He still has a budget constraint, just like all of us. Yeah, fair enough. But what is the state of this country's finances? How would you describe where we are financially? Because 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when we were making the transition from Gretchen to Paul Martin, uh, the liberals, of course, one prime minister to the other, it wasn't a very friendly situation, but the country was up in arms over a $600 billion national debt, which Mr. Martin did a pretty good job of, uh, of managing when he became finance minister. So where are we Where are we relative to then as far as our national finances are concerned? Well, we're not as strong as we were then, and that doesn't make us special because COVID has taken a lot of countries and placed them not as strong as they were. The reality is, is that we do have, in a sense, an out-of-control debt. We have out-of-control amounts of currency in the economy. So what that's going to contribute to is you're going to have what we call aggregate demand, or the number of people chasing those dollars, uh, outweighing the number of opportunities to spend them. And anytime you have aggregate demand bigger than aggregate supply, that's going to fuel inflation. So you say, okay, so we have a lot of debt, um, we have inflationary pressure on the economy, but isn't it going to be helpful when the Bank of Canada comes and increases interest rates? Well, yes and no. Yes, that is going to put a damper on spending, but as soon as you put a damper on spending, you know that you're going to have uh, a decrease, or at least you're going to increase gross domestic product at a slower rate. So that, that's a convoluted answer to your question, but the real answer is we're okay. We are not in great shape. We are not as, we're not doing as well as some countries in the world, but we're doing a whole lot better than others because at the end of the day, our central bank and our government, as much as they sometimes trip over themselves, have done a pretty fair job of maintaining economic stability and liquidity throughout the crisis, Roy. So when the Bank of Canada, I mean, what is the role of the Bank of Canada at this point? We hear terms like quantitative easing. We have the, the governor of the Bank of Canada making a statement about where we are fiscally and where we're going. And then we have uh, CEOs of our major banks like RBC uh, challenging the governor of the Bank of Canada on what he had to say. How do you assess where we are and what's the role of the Bank of Canada in maintaining fiscal health uh, for, for this country? I think the role of the Bank of Canada is very simple. And if the listeners don't know, here it is. They are in control of two things. Number one is the money supply. How much money do we have in the economy? And number two is what is the what are the interest rates in the economy? And namely, the overnight rate. That is the rate that one bank lends to another bank. And every single interest rate in the economy comes from that rate. So they all kind of grow like tentacles off of that rate. So quite simply, what is the central bank supposed to do? It is there to maintain some sort of monetary and price stability. Now, they were doing, under Mark Carney, an exceptionally good job at both. And then the pandemic hit. And so they have not been doing as good a job, of course, but some would say, and I would have said in the very early days, like Mr. Giroux said, we had to do this as a one-time. We had to let the money supply get out of control once. The problem is, is they've let the money supply get out of control so many times, Roy, that we're going to feel the reverberations and the inflationary effects of that for a year. So how are we doing? We're not doing terribly, but I wish we were on that solid ground we were pre-COVID. Okay. Um, 
So, so uh, last weekend, I think it was last weekend, I spoke with John Stackhouse. The weeks all sort of blend into each other. The vice president of RBC about their $2 trillion transition to a net zero economy uh, report. And can, with COP26 beginning and net zero being the uh, catch-all phrase for everybody these days, we're trying to figure out exactly what it means. We had different opinions ex- expressed to us over the last 24, 36 hours. But... When you look at that, and when you look at the $2 trillion transition and $60 billion a year is what it's going to require, this is according to Mr. Stackhouse, to get there, how do we do that? And what's the impact on the on the everyday Canadian? Because, and I've quoted this line so many times, but it's, it is a line in the report, and that is that Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. How do you put all that together? If I throw that goulash at you, what, how, do you how do you feed it to us? You know what? I decipher it being very simple, and I've said this on the show before, is that everything you have just said is in nominal terms, in nominal terms. And I think a lot of people get fooled sometimes into thinking in nominal terms. And nominal terms, Roy, that's the money in your wallet. That is not saying what that money is worth or what it can buy, what is its purchasing power. So what I would like to tell people to do is not get confused by these nominal values but by real values. What, what is the purchasing power of money? What is mm-hmm. the purchasing power of a dollar? And when you talk about moving to net zero, no matter how you slice it or define it, people's purchasing power is going to fall. They are going to have less real disposable income. And frankly, coming out of uh, the crisis that we have just, well, I think we're coming out of it, but I'm not sure, that to me would be number one. Consumers would be number one. Spending would be number one. Purchasing power would be number one. With all due respect, I right now don't have a great amount of time for net zero and carbon taxes. I want to see more families get farther away from that $200 between themselves yes, and the insolvency. That's right. And we've heard that first it was 48% and then it went up to 52% of Canadian families, Canadians who are close they're not even being able to meet their uh, – they're within $200 of not being able to meet their monthly financial obligations. That is a very, very disturbing number. Mike is in Toronto. Mike, thanks for the call. What's the question for Dr. Cam? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, the question is really simple. We've been printing money nonstop since 2008, and inflation has never really been an issue. So what's, this time the supply chain breaks down and inflation goes through the roof. So the question is – once the supply chain is back to normal, what, what happens to inflation? Shouldn't it just go back to the way it's been for the last decade and a half? Uh, in theory, yes. But the problem is, as we always say, is that when you pull a macroeconomic lever, things don't happen very quickly. And when you're talking about the billions and billions and billions of dollars, by the time the central bank is able to, what we say, accommodate that money and get inflation back to the 1% and 3% guidelines, the damage will have already been done. Okay, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, sir. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. In Bridge, North Ontario, here's Steve joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Corridor Radio Network. Where's Bridge North? Oh, it's just north of Peterborough, uh, kind of northeast Toronto, about an hour and a half. Ah, oh, so you're living in God's country. You could say that, yeah. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> What's your question for Dr. Cam? My question is, with all of the money printing going on, it looks to me like Justin Trudeau and, uh, and even other uh, world leaders subscribe to the notion of modern monetary theory, 
where you can just go on printing money using taxation really becomes the only the only reason for taxation is to control the money supply and uh, uh, and that governments can't go broke and I'd like to know his comments on on, on on that because that's what it looks like to me you don't have any opinion on that do you dr. Kemp Oh, I have so many opinions, there'd have to be a Roy Green Show Part 2. Number one, the caller is a thousand percent right. This government would advocate for modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory in one sentence says debts and deficits don't matter. But guess what? Debts and deficits do matter if you care about economic growth, if you care about future generations, and you care about the solvency of your government. So as long as those things don't matter to our Prime Minister, then we're good. The problem is, is there's a real world out there, and modern monetary theory has nothing to do with the real world. All right, Steve, appreciate it. In Bridge North, Ontario, in God's country, north of Peterborough. In uh, Hamilton, Ontario, talk about God's country. Here's Tony. How are you, Tony? Oh, not too bad. Just listening to what you're saying. What's the question, Tony? Uh, Can the government live within their means and still be able to pay down some of their debt. No, they live within our means, and they're not doing a good job of it. <laughs> you got that right. Okay. We're just an ATM. We are. Well, you know what? It's an excellent question. I happen to be in Hamilton, too, right now, so I, I, uh, I, can, I can feel the question deep in my bones. And the answer is, of course, yes. Because governments do set monetaries and fiscal policies, and they have the ability to live in, within whatever means they want to. The fact is that they've shown no um, credibility toward that in the last few years. But if you look at the run-up to where we were before COVID, and especially, as I say, the Mark Carney years, uh, you should look back and be very proud of your central bank. We really did keep things like inflation and exchange rate fluctuations within a very tight band and we were doing quite well. So the answer is, yes, governments can live within their means. The problem is their means are a little bit different, as Roy said, with our means. And they really have to work right now diligently on getting purchasing power and people's individual wealth back to substable points. Tony, I appreciate the call. Dr. Cam, when it comes to inflation, here's my question. We've talked about inflation a fair bit. You and I talked about it last weekend, so we're at, I think it was 4.4%, so highest it's been in 20 years, close to 20 years. And I, I keep hearing that it's yeah, it's just transitory. It's not going to be around very much longer. Things will be under control by the time we get halfway through um, 2022. It's supposed to be under control by the end of 2021. Now they're extending it out a little bit. Uh, are, is it transitory at all? Number this one, it's not, no, number one, it's not transitory at all. The numbers are too big to be transitory. Um, that's a ridiculous statement that was made by a ridiculous person that we won't mention. That, that when you're talking billions and billions of dollars, there is nothing inherently transitory. And to say things like that, the implication is that inflation isn't that bad. But you know what? Inflation is that bad because it erodes every dollar we earn. And for some reason, that has never been a priority of this liberal government. And so I would say to your last caller as well about priorities and living within means, that is what right now priority one, get some price stability back in this economy while it's still credible and still able to grow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we now have, uh, of course, the news that the then Blackhawks head coach, Joe Grenville, has resigned as coach of the Florida Panthers. As for Aldrich, he was allowed to resign from the Blackhawks after the 2010 season with severance and a playoff bonus, according to a report into the incident. Aldrich was later arrested and pled guilty to fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct involving a minor. So what happens now? Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is uh, Daniel Lust, sports attorney and legal professor at New York Law School. We've spoken with Dan on many occasions in the past. How are you, Dan? I'm good, Roy. Uh, pleasure to join you. Uh, obviously, this is a uh, very serious issue, uh, obviously, in, in Canada as well as the United States. So pleasure to join you and, and help break it down what's going on over here. Yeah, please. Well, what is your perspective as a sports lawyer and a law school professor on the Kyle Beach story and the actions, or more accurately, the inaction by the Chicago Blackhawks, the NHL, and the NHLPA until now? You know, it's funny. Um, you know, timing-wise, this NHL uh, case that's occurring at the same time, we have an NFL investigation into the Washington football team. So in some senses, at least you know, domestically in the United States, Blackhawks are being... Uh, at least now, in 2021, applauded for some level of transparency, allowing this law firm, Jenner and Block, to put out this written report, 100-plus pages, as to what the Blackhawks did wrong. So in one sense, they're being applauded, you know, that they're saying what we did wrong, right, and they're being very public about it. On the other hand, right, it still doesn't excuse what happened back in 2010. It doesn't excuse that this was kind of pushed under the rug. Um, you know, but that certainly speaks to an organizational flaw. But you don't, uh, you don't really have this level of transparency in a professional uh, sport um, saying how much we messed up. Here's the 100-page report. Read it. And here, you know, here's everybody, top to bottom, from Bowman to the coach. Um, you know, everybody tried to protect Aldridge. So that, that level of transparency is certainly welcome. Um, you know, it doesn't excuse the underlying acts, but at least it's uh, maybe, maybe a silver lining, uh, kind of a roadmap for teams moving forward to kind of own up to mistakes that were made. One of the things that I find uh, difficult, and we talked about this yesterday with uh, Theo Fleury, one of the one of the difficult things for me to uh, to understand is how this story was kept quiet for as long as it was, particularly when we find out that um, that uh, Mr. Beach's uh, teammates were the Blackhawks uh, taunted him with slurs during practices with coaches present. So, how did it? I don't know, Dan, what's your perspective on that? How does that stay quiet? I mean, the, the non-legal answer is how does it stay quiet because there's a culture of, of staying quiet. I mean, that, that it has to be systematic at some point, right? Nobody stepped up. So even a guy like uh, Patrick Kane, I was reading his comment, that he heard about it, or he heard the rumors, at least. I don't know if it was substantiated, the training camp in the following year. Uh, that's, you know, maybe that sounds better, I guess, to Patrick Kane that he didn't know about it at the time. But that's still allowed 10 decades decade to go by, um, you know, even after the fact, you know, I read the report that Aldrich, uh, you know, the video coordinator in question, was allowed to take the Stanley Cup to his hometown, right? And now the Stanley, Blackhawks are petitioning to have his name removed from the Cup. You know, that shows that for a period of time, everyone was aware of it, right? Everyone was aware that Aldrich was still allowed to hoist the Cup, right? And, and uh, he had involvement with USA Hockey. And uh, you have to think at some point, right, who who is going to step up and say something? And the answer is nobody, right? At a certain point, it was Kyle Beach, but um, you know, short of Kyle Beach suing the Chicago Blackhawks, 
I don't think this law firm would have investigated. Uh, that's my read on it. So how does it go on un- untold for a decade? Uh, a level of nobody wants to take ownership. No one wants to step up and be uh, and do the right thing. So it's uh, unfortunate, but that's that's what I that's what my reading of it is. Okay. So what are the legal options that are available now? Yeah. So I think there's really uh, you know it's, it's really only one, right? It's kind of already happened. It's a lawsuit by Kyle Beach against the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, so that type of lawsuit should uh, we'll see what what comes of it. I, I think most of that record has been sealed. Um, but it's a, there's something in the states called vicarious liability that you are, uh, as an organization, uh, can potentially be responsible for the acts of your employees. Um, so, you know, this was done, uh, at, least, at least the allegations. Player was watching, Kyle Beach was watching video, right, watching tape in preparation for a game. So the question or the issue is whether these bad acts were done within the scope of someone's particular employment. So, you know, that's certainly difficult, number one. And then the other, the other one is, Maybe a claim for something called negligent supervision. How something like this can happen uh, under, you know, uh, while this guy's in your employ. So those are, I think, the main two causes of action here. Um, Kyle Beach had filed that lawsuit in May of 2021. So, yeah, uh, I imagine depositions are going to be taken in that case. The only thing, Roy, which I think is interesting in the States, we have something called uh, bifurcated uh, trials. We could have a case on liability and then a case on damages. So um, I, I think seemingly the Blackhawks are going to uh, acknowledge that they did something wrong from a liability standpoint. And then the case might center on how much Kyle his perspective, which, you know, Kyle Beach, I'm sure, is going to allege his whole career is ruined, right? Guy was a 2008 first-round draft pick with really high hopes. And then, uh, you know, you can do some quick Googling. He's, you know, prior to this, people would say on a, one of the biggest busts for the Blackhawks of all time. And now we might know why, right? And he's going to argue yeah. He's going to argue that his career was derailed because of this. So a uh, lawsuit that's not going away anytime soon. I, I, don't, I, just, I can't see him selling it so quickly. Yeah, so, Dan, The Athletic is reporting that Kyle Beach will be meeting with Chicago Blackhawks officials on Tuesday. And the report is as well that yesterday he spoke with the NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, as well, with, uh, as, well as he did with Donald Fear, the executive director of the NHLPA. What do you make of that? I think they're trying to make amends. I think this this lawsuit, um, these allegations, touch upon so many different uh, organizations. Right? Uh, I saw the report that he tried to make a report to the NFL, or the NHLPA, uh, and then I guess at the time Beach was not a member of the NHLPA, he was not an active player, so they didn't take him up on his cause. So this touches upon everyone. They have to handle this very delicately. Uh, so they want to throw a lot of money at Kyle Beach. Maybe the case will go away, but that's that's not the point. The point is from the PR perspective, the NHL is kind of an all hands on deck situation. How this went on, number one, and how it was undiscovered for 10 years, despite Beach is pretty, pretty candid, his attempts to make this public, no one would believe him. So, yeah, I, I think that's smart. I think it's an all-hands-on-deck scenario from a PR perspective, certainly. Yeah. For, for the professional sports leagues or sports generally, this is really, really a, a, a very negative reality, and it's following on the heels of the John Gruden email scandal and all of the issues that are going on with the Washington football team, which you've been uh, uh, tweeting on. Yeah, that's kind of what I acknowledged earlier. You know, there is an outcry in the United States for the Washington football team. Uh, You know, the the football team in Washington, D.C., it's a very huge market. Um, There there was allegations that involved the owner of that team involved in sexual harassment, uh, toxic workplace, you know, maybe even gender discrimination, some really ugly allegations from the top down. 
And there was a year-long investigation, very similar to what we saw in the NHL with the Blackhawks, a year-long investigation to try to get to the bottom of it. The Blackhawks issued this 100-page written report. For better or for worse, we have some level of transparency. We know what happened to the Blackhawks report, and you have coaches stepping down. You have GM stepping down across the league, which is a good thing, right? You want to clean up the bad players that were involved. Washington football team, no written report, and no one's stepping down because no one's been outed. The only one that's been outed, which, I mean, it may be strangely, is John Gruden, who has no affiliation to the Washington football team. He was just a, you know, now he, or he was most recently the coach for the Raiders, but at the time of these emails, he was a broadcaster for ESPN, a Monday night football broadcaster. Um, but it's, I think people are really disappointed with the NFL that there's no level of transparency. We don't know the bad players in the Washington investigation like we know in the Blackhawks investigation because there was no written report. Uh, just an oral report uh, kind of announced behind closed doors at NHL or at NFL HQ. So, yeah, I think, again, not to say that the Blackhawks, you know, on, on the whole, obviously they, they did something uh, very bad here, but the cleanup, I think people are, are impressed with the transparency. It is rare in, in the U.S. sports to have some level of transparency and that level of accountability. So let me ask you about that final question for you. The Blackhawks are saying they want to reach a, quote, fair resolution, end quote. What do you think that might look like? Fair resolution, I, I think they're talking about uh, monetary, some payment. Right, Kyle Beach, uh, you know, you read his comments, he, he does think that this affected him his whole career, right? And then he had bouts with alcoholism, um, you know, and substance, substance problems. And, and, you know, who am I to say I'm not an expert in that field, but that's, that's what his allegation is, that this incident really was the turning point in his life and his, obviously his hockey career. So a fair resolution, I, I think, is code for some type of monetary settlement, which makes sense. The guy filed a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, which is seeking monetary damages. That's what a civil lawsuit is in our country. So we'll see. We'll see how much money that is. But certainly this is a, a very black mark um, you know, on, on the NHL. So they have to deal with this quickly. Um, you know, and then their, their fate's really out of their hands at this point. A plaintiff in a civil lawsuit in, in the United States is going to dictate the terms and the speed of that type of settlement. So uh, I imagine, you know, they're all meeting this week. Maybe they can hash out some type of settlement. Um, but that might be a seven-figure settlement, uh, certainly possible. I think that's what Beach is likely seeking. But we'll see. Um, I think it's in the NHL's interest to uh, kind of seed uh, and, and maybe pay more than they normally would just to kind of get this thing out of the news and, and then trying to turn the page on all this. COP26 beginning today. And I was just curious, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, our Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, I wonder what his intent is for Canada during the UN Climate Conference. I know we're going to get the, so the sound bites. Some of them will be somewhat vague as far as trying to understand what he's saying is concerned. But uh, I'm also curious, was he always focused on climate? Did he always have a, a sense of uh, and interest in climate? We're going to speak with two former Liberal members of Parliament who are caucus colleagues of Justin Trudeau about that and more, including what's coming as far as energy is concerned. You're familiar with both of the former members of Parliament, Michelle Simpson, who was a Liberal MP from 2008 to 2011, parliamentary seatmate to the aforementioned Mr. Trudeau. How are you, Michelle? I'm fine, Roy. It's good to have you back. I'm delighted to be back, especially with my friend Dan. Mr. McTagg, Liberal MP, 1993 to 2011, founder, president, Canadians for Unaffordable Energy. <laughs> and I'm gushing. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Michelle. Good to be here. Hi, Dan. You held uh, parliamentary secretary roles during the time Paul Martin was 
prime minister, though, those were different uh, liberal mem- prime ministers, huh? uh, Mr. Martin and even Mr. Kretschmann, who you weren't uh, deeply in love with, if I remember correctly. No, but there was uh, that respect. Uh, they respected the backbench and they respected yeah. uh, you know opinion. So um, unlike the current, uh, what I call the best NDP government we've seen, the first one, this, uh, uh, the Kretschmann and, and Martin had both distinguished themselves as far as prime ministers are concerned by allowing the backbench a lot more freedom to pass bills and not small ones. Uh, I became the first MP and that's not a salutary comment uh, to actually amend the criminal code, making, uh, engaging police in high, high speed pursuits, uh, uh, illegal and a criminal offense, uh, you know, uh, saving lives of Canadians abroad. These were things that were done by the backbench. You don't see that anymore. It's all done by the front bench and choreographed by the insiders. Yeah. Michelle? I absolutely agree. Recently, I've been watching, uh, today even, uh, former Prime Minister Mulroney, and lately because of his book, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Kretchen, and there's no question that they were, they offered a different type of leadership and quite frankly, much better leadership for Canadians, in my opinion. Let's talk about this for just a moment, and let's talk about Mr. Chrétien. Elected in 1993, which was when you were elected, uh, Dan, that was your first term, as a member of Parliament, uh, Mr. Chrétien, over the last number of days, he has a new book out, but he has also taken advantage of opportunity, or maybe I shouldn't say taken advantage of, he has chosen to be rather critical as the former prime minister, former liberal prime minister, of the current liberal prime minister. That speaks volumes. I spoke with Stephen Ledrew about this yesterday, the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. So, so Michelle, you, you sat with Mr. Trudeau. You sat beside him. You were his seatmate for a number of years in Parliament. What do you make of um, Jean Chrétien challenging, specifically challenging, the the governing style of the current prime minister. What do you what do you make of that? Well, uh, Mr. Kretchen is a very intelligent man, and I think he's seeing exactly what many of us are seeing. And earlier, you were you asked the question: Do you think that our prime minister has always been concerned with climate change? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you, based on what I know, absolutely not. Mr. Trudeau has always been about Mr. Trudeau. You've told us in the past that when you would sit at the bench in Parliament for question period, Mr. Trudeau would arrive, I don't want to misquote you, with a sheaf of papers, and he would show you these papers, and they were invariably and exclusively reprints of stories, not about climate, but about him. Yes? Absolutely. It, it actually, it could bring a smile to your face when we're going through serious issues in Parliament. And I thought, really? This, this is what you're consumed with? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I'm not saying anything I haven't said before. And there are no sour grapes. I've always said it was always, he was always sizzle and no steak. And people like Kretchen and Mulroney really had the steak. They really had the backbone, and they, they, they were leaders. Yeah, I sat with Brian Mulroney for an hour, a face-to-face, one-on-one interview, and one day I'll tell the story how we got that. But uh, there was no doubt this man was in charge 
I mean, he said something during that interview that didn't serve him very well, became a national story. But that was his choosing. It wasn't mine. I just asked the question. But there was a sense of this guy who's in charge. I don't know, Dan, whether Mr. Trudeau is truly in charge. I can't understand his cabinet. I want to talk to you about the cabinet selections in a minute. But the reason that I'm asking about whether or not there is a consistent pattern, whether there is a consistent commitment to climate by this current prime minister, because he's making this his issue uh, for, well, for he's made it his issue for the last number of years, and we're assuming he's going to make it his issue for however long he remains in the corner office of the PMO. Uh, there's an importance to know whether there's a continuance here, whether he's had an interest in climate for a long period of time. What was your experience with him? Well, I'm with Michelle on this, and I've seen him speak. I've certainly uh, noted the many opportunities he's given himself to boast about his appearances. Uh, many of those, by the way, paid from nonprofit organizations that often didn't have really a lot of money to do this, but needed, you know, a headliner to to come and speak. But that aside, I've never really known the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to take much of an issue on anything, often contradictory. Uh, but there's no doubt that his, it's his handlers that are, uh, you know, have taken over the merging of the two organizations, the uh, the climate folks out of uh, the McGuinty-Wynn, uh, Ontario uh, base, and uh, now, of course, the uh, Ecotair, uh, Greenpeace, uh, green fanatics uh, that is now represented as Minister of Environment. By mm-hmm. the way, since when do we go through three Ministers of Environment in three terms? I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if he gets it, he, or if he wants to go hard or soft or medium or somewhere in between, but I, you know, I'm not sure he really understands the issue, nor has he really taken any sense of appreciation for the devastating impact this is having on Canadians. You, know, you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, not just in terms of fuel prices, well, let's but do, food prices. Let's, we talk, seen anything yet. let's talk about the cabinet selections that were made, including Mr. Gilbeau as environment minister. What do you make of that cabinet? Are these people who are objectively going to provide the prime minister with significantly important advice on which to act, or are they, as Mr. Um, as our good friend Stephen LeDrew said yesterday, they're sycophants. What are they, Michelle? Oh, they're the shiny objects in the window that Mr. Trudeau's putting out to a certain degree. Um, I agreed with uh, some of them, but to Dan's point, uh, three environment ministers in uh, three mandates. We have five foreign affairs ministers. And it's as if he can't settle on. No one's brought him the glory that he needs to achieve what he wants to achieve, which is all about himself, frankly. So that I sound cynical, it's simply because... I, I am following this, these things, and knowing him, I, I'm not a best friend, but having observed him closely for two and a half years, I, I know exactly what, I, what he's thinking. Okay, so, so Dan, as we come out of COP26, what will you be expecting from the Canadian delegation, from the Prime Minister, from the new Environment Minister? What will you be expecting, and how will that reflect... Let's tie this all together. How will that reflect on energy supply and energy costs for Canadians? Well, by his cabinet, 
which is woefully uh, inadequate. Um, I mean, really, the sea line when from our day when Michelle and I were there, I would expect that he's going to triple down on uh, more climate uh, uh, resolutions, bringing forth the climate uh, uh, e- uh, economy uh, mandate, uh, bringing forth this what I call the weather station, but. Uh, you know, ensuring that companies uh, have a uh, significant climate ESG mandate, you know, piling on to the 55 trillion bucks that's been accumulated over there along the lines of what uh, the Mark Carneys of this world want. I suspect that he's going to continue to be absolutely deaf and tone deaf to the financial mess that we found ourselves in. I mean, it's, it's a desperate situation. I don't care what anyone wants to say. It's only a matter of time before all the uh, the good stuff on the business side uh, gets pushed aside and the bond Raiders begin to look at Canada's, very, you know, Canada's uh, woeful economic situation. He's going to continue to destroy uh, and alienate the West. And uh, at a time in which the world, including Biden, pitifully, pathetically, are going on bended knee to OPEC looking for more oil, he's going to say, well, Canada isn't the option. And uh, for that reason, uh, I suspect that we're going to see more of the same from a PM who really follows the wind on this stuff. And it's pretty self-congratulatory, self reinforcing stuff. He spends billions of dollars every year on organizations uh, that go out and push the climate uh, catastrophic side at the beginning of what you introduced the show with, that, uh, you know, sort of, we're all going to be extinct in the next 20 or 30 years as a result of this. This alarmism, this, what I've referred to as climate bedwetting, uh, is really what his government's all about. And unfortunately for Canadians, they're ready to pay in ways you could not possibly even conceive of just a couple of weeks ago. Okay, but, Michelle, but what are your I, thoughts? Can I interject one second? Sure. Uh, to see if Dan agrees, do you not think that this is all about pursuing a legacy that has eluded him? And at this juncture in his uh, political career, he's desperate to achieve at any cost. I think it's a good point, Michelle. And I think he has to strike uh, something that he has achieved in his life, as opposed to uh, running on his dad's coattails. Mm-hmm. Um, and the name, the Trudeau name. That's it. Uh, so he's very much uh, uh, an ambition-driven person, in which Canadians simply don't rate. And I think if we want any example of how out of touch this man is, we only had to look what he did to Fino, which mm-hmm. I think has left a bitter taste in the mouth of everyone, even his own party. Yeah, this is a guy who will not raise the flag to be lowered on Remembrance Day. Sickening. Absolutely. But he did uh- not attend the Day of National Reconciliation, because he had to go to Tofino. And it was his own day. Well, somebody his actually... government brought forward. A, fr- a friend of mine said that's his national holiday. Yep. And he made it a joke, a national joke. It's very sad. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.